reading is from Galatians 5, 13 to 15. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour each other, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. You may be seated. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray as your people today that you would open our eyes to behold your glory, that you would open our ears to hear your voice, and that you would open our hearts to believe. And we know that it is only by the miraculous provision of your spirit in our life that any of these things are possible. And so we ask it in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, today as we look at this text, uh, I want us to see Jesus' heart for his church at all times, in every generation, in every place in the world. I want us to see that. I want us to see that specifically played out in the way that Paul expresses his heart for the churches of Galatia at this particular point in history, in the first century, that we're reading about here. And I want us to understand how that comes to a focus and how that impacts us here in the 21st century in the city of Vancouver, as the church of Jesus here in Vancouver. I want us to see Jesus' heart for the church all over the whole world at all points of history as expressed in Paul's heart for the churches of Galatia at this point in first century history and then how that informs the way that we live as the church and serve our generation here at this point in history. So so we're going to look at all of these things. I'm going to take you to a couple different main passages in order to communicate what I think this is about because I think the focus of this passage, focus here, similar to what we talked about last week, is on our freedom in the gospel, but specifically our freedom in the gospel and how that leads to two things. Number one, our love for one another. And number two, the unity of the church. This passage is focused on our freedom in the gospel and how that leads to love for one another and how that leads to the unity of the church. And so that's going to kind of guide our time as we look at this together. Verse 13 says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, You're called to freedom. That's you and you and you and you. That's not a super Christian level thing. You're in Christ. You're called to freedom. You've been called to freedom. Now, last week I made the case that nobody can be biblically free until they accept that they are enslaved to sin, self, and the world, and that you cannot be free until you forsake sin, self, and the world. And you do so in favor of of obediently serving Jesus as both Lord and Messiah. I said Jesus is not simply our Savior. He's also our Lord. It's not an either-or kind of option. So for us to receive the work of the cross, for us to receive the salvation offered to us through faith in Jesus, that means that you have to forsake all of your self-salvation projects. You've got to admit your need for Jesus... And then you've got to come under the authority of God in obedience to his commands. And once we stand in that freedom, the freedom that says, I am no longer trying to save myself, but I've come under the authority of the sovereign ruler of the world, the creator and sustainer of all things, the savior of all people, come under his authority, that's the place of freedom. 
Once we stand in that freedom, we need to stand firm. It said in verse 1, Galatians 5, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And so freedom has been the focus of the passage from chapter 5, verse 1, all the way down to what we're looking at here. But it's not the kind of freedom that I talked about last week as culturally defined as maybe doing what I want and being my true self. It's not our freedom. We don't talk about freedom like that as followers of Jesus. That's not freedom. That's bondage masquerading as freedom in the independent, autonomous, sovereign self. And when it comes right down to it, just think about those words. Independent, autonomous, and sovereign. Those are not words that describe human beings. Those are words that describe God. Okay. So, God is God. Say this with me, Christ City. Say it with me. God is God. I am not. I'm, I make you do that like once every year or so. It's going to be okay. Some of you are like, oh boy, I don't, I'm just silent here. No. That's a good reminder, is it not? When I get stressed out about something, oh, God, you're God, I'm not. That's my freedom. It's part of my freedom in the gospel. I don't have to try to be him. He, he's him, and I get to submit to him. God is independent. God is autonomous. God is sovereign. See, a big view of self and a small view of God is actually what got humanity into the mess that we're in right now. So it stands to reason that continuing on with a big view of self and a small view of God is not going to lead to freedom. The bondage that we're in is because we have a high view of ourselves and a low view of God. And so we want to pay attention to that and at least admit that the solution to the bondage that we seem to find ourselves in is probably not going to be continuing to have a high view of ourselves and a low view of God. It's only in Christ that we can have true freedom. But like I asked last week at the end of the message, if you're a follower of Jesus, what are you going to do with that freedom? It says that you're free. There's an objective truth that if you're in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, that you have received freedom. But then what are you going to do with that? Let's look at the text, verse 13. You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You're called to freedom, brothers and sisters, it says in the text. So you're, you're called to freedom. If you're a follower of Jesus, freedom's yours. Freedom from slavery to sin. Freedom from the bondage of trying to earn a right standing before God in your own strength. Okay, but Christian freedom, I want to be clear about this, is not just freedom from. Christian freedom is freedom for. It's not just freedom from something, it's freedom to something. It's freedom from the self-salvation project of law-keeping. You could say that to the Galatians. It's freedom from but it's also freedom to belong. It's freedom to come to God. It's freedom from living as a slave, and it's freedom to living as a child of God, if you want to use the language of Galatians. Yeah, we're free from the penalty of sin, sure, we're free from the power of sin in Christ, we're free from those things, but we're also free to serve one another in love. We're free to serve one another in unity in Christ. For you are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. So we don't use 
The freedom we have in Christ to indulge the flesh in any way, shape, or form. But we use our freedom in Christ to extend loving service and care to one another. See, as you've been served by Jesus, you're now free to serve. As you've been loved by Jesus, you're now free to love. As you've been forgiven by Jesus, you're now free to forgive. That doesn't sound like the foundation that cultural freedom is built upon. Culturally defined freedom is typically self-centered, or you could say it's typically an opportunity for the flesh. I get to do what I want to do. I get to be the independent, autonomous, sovereign person in my life, sovereign ruler of my life. That's typically how freedom is culturally defined. Biblically defined freedom is always others-centered, and it flows from being loved. It's a different kind of freedom. It's a kind of freedom that binds you together with others. It's a kind of freedom that binds together those who have received the same kind of freedom in a different, beautiful, visible kind of manner. Biblical freedom is others-focused, and I think it's a picture of fulfilled law. Look at verse 13. You are called to freedom, brothers, only do not use it, uh, your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Look at this, 14. It says, for the law, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You heard that one before? That's a big one. It's a biggie in the Bible. You want to track with that one. Uh, Leviticus 19.18, Jesus refers to it. Several times. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then there's a warning in verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. That was a, a quick like, hey, we're talking about love. And then boom. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Do you hear what he's saying? You're free. So let that freedom bring you to love and unity, not selfishness and division. He's saying, don't use your freedom, verse 13, for a selfish indulgence of the flesh. And then he says, use your freedom for generosity and serving one another in love. And then he says, here's how that looks, loving your neighbor as yourself. It's a summary command of the law. Then he says, but if your flesh is ruling, then you'll devour one another in destructive division. He moves from the flesh to love, to what love looks like, and then back to what the flesh looks like. Focus here is on our freedom and how that freedom leads to love for one another and the unity of the church. Let me explain what I mean in the context of Galatia. We're in week 21 of our study, and so if you're new-ish or newer, you don't know how big of a mess the Galatian church is. They're in a bit of a mess. That's why we have this letter in the first place. There's fracturing and factions, and division, and biting, and devouring in that sense of what's going on. They had heard and believed the gospel when Paul went there on a missionary journey and preached to them. They believed it. They heard it. But then when he left, some of their false teachers came in with a bit of a different message, and they actually created a divisive faction inside the church. This was the message that the false teachers were delivering. And I think Paul's heart for the church is this. He wants them to experience the freedom that the gospel brings and how that works itself out in love and unity, not in flesh and division. 
This is a letter from a guy who loves this people. These are not abstract theological concepts. This is communal life. So let me ask you the question, Christ City, what are you going to do with your freedom? Paul says, don't live your freedom out as a self-centered opportunity for the flesh, but live into your freedom through serving with an others-centered love, a neighborly love, a love for the other. Paul says, don't live out your freedom in bitter rivalry, devouring one another, but live into your freedom by preferring one another in loving unity. Paul's heart for the churches of Galatia is to be built on the foundation of love and unity, and that is the exact same desire as Jesus taught and holds, the same desire he has, for his church through the whole world. And this is where I want to show you what I mean. This is what it says in John chapter 17. It's the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It's the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in scripture. This is an amazing prayer because this is when you get to listen in on how Jesus talks to the Father about you. John chapter 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only. He's talking about the disciples who are with him. He's praying. This is a prayer of Jesus. He's talking to the disciples, talking to the Father. He's got the disciples. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Just so you know, Christ City Church, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, West Coast of North America, 2019. He's talking about you. But also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me. And I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Okay, I said the focus of this freedom that we see in Galatians 5, I think, in our verses this morning, is how that freedom leads to love for one another and the unity of the church. So I want you to see how love for one another and the unity of the church are the dual focus of Jesus' prayer in John 17. And I want you to see that the foundation of our love for one another and our unity in the church are based on the nature and character of God himself. So let me get a little theological with you. You all right? That was not inspiring. That's okay. Track. Let's start with love for one another. Where does that come from? Look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus says, Father, I want them to notice that our love preexisted the foundation of the world. All love is built on the foundation of the external, or pardon me, the external, the eternal love of God for God. God's love within the Trinity has never not existed. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit 
have never not had love within their relationship. So the love that the Father has for the Son and the Spirit, and the love that the Son has for the Father and the Spirit, and the love that the Spirit has for the Father and the Son has never not existed. It's the foundation of what we understand love to be. It's the foundation our love is built upon. So when the Bible says God is love, it's not like there's this thing out there in the world that is love, and it's like, okay, well, God measured up to love. All right, God is love. It's not how it works. God in himself provides the definition of our reality of what love is. So love is not an abstract concept. It is a personal quality of God. It's vital that we get a hold of this. This is what Jonathan Lehman said. He said, God's own character gives us the definition and standards of love. Dictionary writers should observe God and then draft their definition of love on that basis. Anything called love that does not have its source in God is not love. To be clear, Jonathan Lehman is a Christian theologian, not a secular definer of love. Anything called love that does not have its source in God is not love. I bet some of you will have a hard time with that statement. But come with me here. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another. For our love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. See, love is not just the butterflies that stir in your stomach when you're a toddler and you dance with the boy at the front at church. Okay? That's not love. It's an aspect of love, but it's not the totality of the definition of love. Love is not the romance novel that you're reading. Not fully. See, love is not the television program that you're binge-watching on Netflix that's based entirely on adultery and the feelings that they have for that person they're in an adulterous affair with, and they say, but this is real love. Who gets to define what love is? I don't want to get too out there, but this is very important for us. The ethic of love in the church is based on the love found within the three persons of the triune God. The reason that we know that love is that God himself has revealed it to us and he did so by loving us. So he communicates that he is love and how he loves us. And we have that in the scriptures. We have that most visibly communicated to us on the cross of Calvary, that God is love. Later in the same chapter in 1 John 4, 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. So the ethic or the behavior of love within the church of Jesus Christ is not based on a culturally defined view of what that might look and feel like. It's based upon the foundational nature of the character of God. He is love. why john 17 says jesus is talking to the father and he basically says i want these disciples to see the glory that we've always shared and the love that's existed before the foundation of the world 
Jesus wants the same thing as Paul, or probably better to phrase it, that Paul wants the same thing as Jesus in the church of Galatia. It says in verse 13, You are called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Not love that is there when you feel it in that moment, but a bigger love. A love that's based on the ability to love your enemies. A foundational love that's based on the nature and character of God. Something enduring, something strong, something powerful, something beyond your momentary whims of up and down emotions. It says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus says, because you've been loved, you are now free to love one another. Love for one another and the unity of the church are the dual focus of Jesus' prayer in John 17, and they are evidenced in the way that Jesus is at work in the church of Galatia, utilizing Paul, his messenger, to deliver this truth to them. Jesus loves his church. So what about the unity of the church? Look at John 17 again. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they might all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be even one, that they may be one even as we are one. In them, I in them, you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Again, let me jump into it. Notice the preposition in. Bet you didn't think that was going to come up this morning. Oh, good. English grammar lessons from grade three. Prepositions. Hmm, what are prepositions? I can't remember what prepositions are. Well, let me tell you. Prepositions are whatever the bunny can do to the hill. The bunny can go over the hill, under the hill, through the hill. Okay? You with me? If my biblical languages professor was here, he would laugh at the fact that I'm teaching you that. Because I'm not good at it. The word in tells us something about the relationship and what we're talking about here. It says the Father is in the Son. And the Son is in the Father. And then it says, we are in the Father and the Son. And it says that the Son is in us. When we read in, in relationship to these contexts, that's shorthand for union. There's something that's gone on. It's getting to our relationship with Jesus. We are invited in to the fullness of the community of God. This is a radical concept. This is talking about our union with Christ, where we are grafted in to who he is. So when we talk about our union with Christ, we're talking about being united with him in his death, united with him in his resurrection. See, in his death, he took upon himself the judgment for our sin, and in his resurrection, he overcomes death, and then he gifts us eternal life. And so we are grafted in, into the eternal life of the resurrected king of the universe. There's a new creation. Union with Christ is everything. It's the all-or-nothing application of everything that it means to be eternally saved. 
So by faith, we are united to Christ when we receive what he did for us on the cross to forgive our sin. And when we receive that in repentance, we can be united to Christ and realize that he is Lord and Savior. Repentance is turning away from the direction that you are heading and turning and reorienting yourself toward God. We want to follow him. We want to look to Jesus, the Lord and Savior. See, our freedom comes, our freedom in the gospel comes from being in union with Christ. And our union with Christ is the uniting of all of our sin, all of our brokenness to his forgiveness, to his provision for salvation, to his wholeness. See, our fragmented, broken lives are united to his wholeness and we are being made whole. That's how I know that it's all going to be okay. That's how I know when I hear terrible stories and horrific things and I frustrate myself in my own lack of growth. I know it's ultimately going to be okay because he has taken my brokenness and he has fused it with his wholeness and his wholeness will win. That's union with Christ. But here's what I'm getting at. Yeah, sorry, that wasn't the point. The unity of the church is grounded in the unity of the Father and the Son, is what it says in John 17. And we, as the church, are invited into that unity. John 17, 20 says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. The unity of the church, the, the bond that holds us together, is grounded in the unity of the Father and the Son. John seventeen twenty two and 23 says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. So the unity of the church is grounded in our union with Christ. And Jesus' prayer is that we would be unified as one in the church, that we would be people who walk in unity both locally and globally. Jesus' prayer will be answered. When we talk about the unity of the church, whether we mean Christ City Church here on the corner of 43rd and Prince Edward, or we're talking about the church universal, the absolute worst thing that we can do is to become unity conscious. Because unity is not what united us together. So don't become unity conscious. That's why Paul didn't tell them to become unity conscious. He said, live out your freedom preferring and loving the other, don't bite and devour each other. Don't become unity conscious. See, the reason that, that unity consciousness fails is because it puts us at the center. And anytime we're at the center, the whole thing's about to fall apart. Be Christ conscious. Because that's the only way to be truly united. See, we only have one Lord, we only have one head of the church, and we need to keep our eyes fixed on him. So we are united by something stronger than anything that could ever divide us, but that means that we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. Listen to how the wonderful Canadian preacher A.W. Tozer said this. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? 
They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Okay, again, here's my point in all of this. In Galatia, Paul's reminding them that they are free in Christ and that this freedom should manifest itself in the way that they love one another and in the overall unity of the church that they should not be devouring one another in destructive division. So he's calling them to Jesus because calling them to Jesus is the foundation of their love and unity. He calls them to walk in the freedom that Christ purchased for them because it is only in that freedom that we are truly free to love one another and that we are truly free to be united to one another in something that is stronger than could ever divide us. It's the exact same thing Jesus says in John 17. The freedom we have in relationship to Christ is where we learn what love looks like because it's based on the love that has ever existed in the triune God. So God's love becomes the foundation for the way we love one another. And the freedom we have in relationship to Christ is where we learn what it looks like to be united together in love, which again is built on the foundation of the unity of the Trinity. And that's all wonderful. Thank you for enduring with me a tedious theological look at the foundational nature of the Trinity as it relates to the church of Jesus in the 21st century. You okay? I won't do that again next week. Actually, Jake, are you preaching next week? No, I think I'm preaching next week. Jake won't do that next week. It's me. I'm preaching next week. You look shell-shocked. That's okay. Either you didn't understand a thing I just said and I taught it very poorly, or it just blew your mind. And you're looking for the implications of this truth, which I'm about to connect you to. Well, good guess. I'm about to connect you to the implications of this truth because it's not as though it's about love and unity. It's not, that's not even what it's about. It's not as though love and unity are ends in themselves in this way. They are. They, they kind of are. But something else is going on here. I want you to see this. Look back at John 17, 20 to 23 with me again. I do not ask for these only, just the disciples who are with them, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. It's all of us that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Look at this, two glorious words. So that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. He's praying. He's praying for the visible love and unity of God to be on display through the church for the world to see. It's why it matters that the church in Galatia is in this fragmented, disastrous mess of theological controversy. Do you know what happens? Maybe you've experienced this when there's big theological controversy in the church. Here's what happens. Everybody looks in. Nobody looks out. Love, justice, and mission in the world tend to stop in those churches, and they tend to start devouring each other inside, and they devour each other until they are a small, fragmented mess of what they're supposed to be 
gloriously standing together in their union with Christ, living in the freedom of the gospel that allows them to love one another. Paul doesn't want that for the church of Galatia. The church is too important to go on backbiting and devouring each other. Because there's a so that in Jesus' prayer. He wants them to be healthy, loving one another, united in their freedom in the gospel. But here's why. Because this whole deal is not about them. Christ City, I love you. It's not about you. But I love you. We should love one another. But not as though that is the end in itself. Your freedom in the gospel is ultimately not about you, which is why I ended last week's message with, what are you going to do with your freedom? Jesus says the love and the unity of the church is so that the world may know that you've sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So listen to what Jesus taught his disciple just a few hours before he prayed this prayer that we have recorded for us in John 17. This is what he said to his disciples, John 13, 34 and 35. He says, a new commandment I give to you. Uh, Note, not a new suggestion. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's the so that that comes out in verse 21 and 22 in John 17. That's the so that. By this, the way that you love one another, all people will know that you are my disciples All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is what uh, Francis Schaeffer, who who wrote a bunch of stuff decades ago, that reverberates in my mind weekly, almost. This is what he said. He called this the final apologetic. Look at this. Yet without true Christians loving one another, Christ says the world cannot be expected to listen even when we give them proper answers. Let us be careful, indeed, to spend a lifetime studying to give honest answers. For years, the Orthodox Evangelical Church has done this very poorly. Just stop there. In his day, it was sort of uh, falling apart doctrinally, and he wanted there to be more robust doctrine. But what he was saying was that this actually isn't just good enough giving answers to people who are not followers of Jesus to how they might understand and conceive of God and God's love in their life and why they should serve him and follow him and obey him. He said the church wasn't giving great answers and he wanted that to be better. And so he is an advocate of an intellectual, smart person kind of answer to smart person kind of questions. He's an advocate for that. He's not down on that. But look at what he says. So it is good to spend time learning to answer the questions of men who are around us, but... After we have done our best to communicate to a lost world, still we must never forget that the final apologetic which Jesus gives is the observable love of true Christians for true Christians. The observable love of true Christians for true Christians. Jesus said, just as I have loved you, you're to love one another, and that's how the world around you will know that I'm good, that I'm real, and that I love them. It'll come through you. Um, Later on in John's gospel, John chapter 20, I think it's verse 21, Jesus says, 
as the Father sent me, so I send you. I want to recast that as I think about it. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now go and love. This is the the mission that God has called us to. And you go, man, talking about love for one another, talking about the unity of the church or the disunity of the church that needs to be fixed. Yeah, there's a a point to it. It goes beyond us. It's not self-centered. It's not even corporately self-centered. It's because Jesus' mission has a church. And he's called us to take the love that we have received from him to the ends of the earth. Our love and unity in the gospel are not just about us. And our freedom in the gospel is not ultimately about you. It's not about us. It's the so that's in this text in John that I want to highlight. Because if you take the so that out of the text, I don't, I don't know if it matters that much how we love each other. Let me do a mental exercise that I have not yet thought about, which is always scary. Uh, I hate making the bed. Therefore, I have not made the bed since I was about eight. Because at eight, I started to debate my mother about the merits of making the bed that I would later sleep in that evening. Okay, you've been there. I was such an exhausting debater at that point. I think that's why she just finally gave up. I don't know if I was eight. I'm at a ten. What's the point of making the bed that you're just going to sleep in later? Because really, this is not about anybody else. Like, you, you don't like the nature of my room and the state of my room? Close the door. You are not invited in anyways. Yeah, I was a difficult kid to deal with. Just imagine me as a husband. <laughs> That's not about anybody else. I'm literally the only person who sleeps in this little twin bed. Why do you care that the, this tucked? Now, I had a military dad, so that's number one, just because you care. Why? Because they said we care. (laughs) If it's only about me, nothing else matters. If it's only about us, does it really matter how we treat each other? If it's only about us, does it really matter if we're unified? I think you could make an argument that it might not. If it's only about us. But what if it's about God? What if the why to the question of our unity and love within the body of Christ? What if the why is that so the world might conceive of his glory and his goodness and his care and his saving work? What if that's the why? All of a sudden, it changes the way we behave with one another. If the church exists for the sake of those who are not yet its members, we need to make sure that our freedom is not used for an opportunity in the flesh, but an opportunity to fulfill the law of Christ. In verse 14 says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Would you stand with me as we respond today? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.